Please turn with me in your Bibles, if you would, to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 12. Our sermon text for this morning is Matthew 12, verses 22 through 50. Before we read that text, let's pray together for God's blessing on his word. Our Father, we do pray that you would come and open our hearts and minds this morning, that you would pour out your spirit on us, that you would illumine us uh, to help us to understand your word, uh, to receive it, to believe it, to rest in its truth, most of all to look to our Savior Jesus. Uh, Father, move us closer to your Son, Jesus, our Savior, this morning, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 50. Then a demon-possessed man, who was blind and mute, was brought to him, and he healed him so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven either in this age or in the age to come. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad, for the tree is known by its fruit. You brood of vipers, how can you speak good when you are evil? For out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks. The good person out of his good treasure brings forth good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure brings forth evil. I tell you, on the day of judgment, people will give account for every careless word they speak. For by your words you will be justified, and by your words you will be condemned. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him, saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it, for she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon, and behold, something greater than Solomon is here. When the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest but finds none. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds the house empty, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and brings with it seven other spirits more evil than itself, 
and they enter and dwell there, and the last state of that person is worse than the first, so also will it be with this evil generation. While he was still speaking to the people, behold, his mother and his brothers stood outside asking to speak to him. But he replied to the man who told him, Who is my brother? And who is my mother? And who are my brothers? And stretching out his hand toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Well, I want to ask three questions this morning. We're looking at Matthew chapter 12, and there are three questions that arise out of this text. They probe our hearts. You know, Hebrews 4 verse 12 says that the word of God pierces into the soul and uh, discerns the thoughts and intentions of our hearts. And that's what we want to allow it to do this morning. And uh, the the three questions you can see in your bulletin, they're, they're the outline for this morning's sermon. And the three questions are this, what is the Spirit teaching you? How are you responding? And what gets in the way? Uh, First question, what is the Spirit teaching you? Uh, Now this question assumes something, doesn't it? It assumes, maybe it assumes a lot of things, but it assumes that God's Spirit is at work in the world. It assumes that God is not distant, uh, that He's not far off, that He's not aloof. We're going to see that in this passage. We'll get to that. But, you know, Jesus elsewhere in the Gospel of John said that he would send his spirit and that when the Holy Spirit would come, he would do essentially or at the very least two things, that he would convict the world of sin and that he would bear witness to Jesus. And so Jesus teaches that his Holy Spirit is at work in the world right now, convicting us of sin and teaching us about Jesus. So that moves us to ask the question, well, what is the Spirit teaching me? What is He teaching me? What is He teaching me about myself? What is the Holy Spirit showing me about my sin? Are there areas in my life where I am not living in accord with the gospel? Are there areas where I am loving the world more than Jesus? Where am I living for worldly pleasure more than I'm living to delight in my Savior? Where am I submitting to some other ultimate authority rather than submitting to King Jesus? Maybe that's to myself and my own thoughts and my own heart. Maybe it's to some other person. Maybe I'm submitting to some idea or ideal. But the question is, to whom am I submitting? Who am I living for? Am I selfish or self-indulgent or self-reliant or self-willed or self-promoting and so on, right? And is the Holy Spirit convicting me of some sin in some area of my life? That's part of the Holy Spirit's work in the world right now. Another part of the Holy Spirit's work is to teach us about Jesus. And that really brings us to the more pointed question of our passage, which is what is the Holy Spirit teaching you, not just about yourself or your sin, but what is he teaching you about your Savior? What is the Spirit teaching you about Jesus? The book of Matthew up till now has been all about who Jesus is. Uh, Jesus comes as the son of David, the king of Israel. He comes having divine authority as God's appointed king. He's not just the son of David, but he's also the son of God. And Jesus uses that divine authority we've seen throughout Matthew to teach and to heal the sick and to control the weather, to cast out demons, even to raise the dead, even to forgive sins. 
In fact, Jesus says his healing the sick was really just to prove that he has authority on earth to forgive sins. The Pharisees in uh, the book are constantly, they, they consistently use their authority, their limited authority, to nitpick and to accuse. But twice Jesus responds to them by quoting that God desires mercy and not sacrifice. See, Matthew is teaching us that, that Jesus is the one who has divine authority to show mercy. That's who Jesus is. And we should notice as we read through Matthew that it's the Holy Spirit who has been making all of this possible. And the Holy Spirit is the one who caused Mary to, to be with child. In chapter 1, the, then in Jesus' baptism, the Spirit comes and rests on Jesus. Matthew quotes Isaiah as saying that the Father puts his Spirit on the Son, which empowers him to proclaim the kingdom. In our passage this morning, Jesus says that he casts out demons by the Spirit of God, which proves, Jesus says, that the kingdom of God has come in him. So the Holy Spirit has been working through Jesus. He's been bearing witness to, to Jesus that Jesus is the king of God's kingdom, the one who has authority to forgive sins. And this is consistent with what Jesus says, again, about the Holy Spirit in, in the Gospel of John. He says the Spirit would come and bear witness to Jesus, that the Holy Spirit would come and glorify Jesus. That's what the Spirit was doing during his lifetime as he worked through Jesus to perform these miracles. So here, at least on one level, is what the Holy Spirit has been teaching us through Jesus' healing ministry as we see it in the book of Matthew. He's been teaching us that Jesus is God's appointed king, his divine, uh, uh, he has divine authority to show mercy, to remove both the guilt of our sin, right, by showing forgiveness, as well as to remove the curse of our sin by bringing healing to our bodies. And so the question for us now is, well, okay, if this is what the Spirit has been teaching us about Jesus, that he has divine authority, that he's come to show mercy, that he has authority on earth to forgive sins, how are we responding to the Spirit's Work. How are we responding to what the Spirit has been teaching us? We'll look at Matthew 12, 22 to 23, and we'll see the response of the crowds. Verse 22 says, Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? You see, Jesus once again heals a man, a man who's been oppressed by the presence of a demon. And Jesus heals this man, and really not much is said about the healing, except that it's complete. Right? The man was oppressed by a demon, he was blind, and he couldn't speak, and Jesus heals him, and then he can see and he can speak. And Matthew is not so much interested here about the mechanics of what happened, or even the details of what happened, but he's interested in how people respond. And the crowds respond saying, can this be the son of David? We know from the first chapter of Matthew that this is really the correct response, right? Jesus is the son of David. He is the Messiah. That's what they're saying. And his miracles prove that, right? He is the Messiah. He's endowed. He's been anointed with the Holy Spirit. The crowds then are drawing the correct conclusion. God had promised to send his Messiah, his anointed one, to empower him with the Holy Spirit, to enable him to perform miracles, to bring the restoration that God wanted to bring to this broken world. And here is Jesus doing just that. He's, he's bringing that restoration. He's performing those miracles in fulfillment of the promises of God. 
The crowds draw the right conclusion. Can this be the son of David? And the answer is yes, yes. This is who he is. But notice the response of the Pharisees. Rather than receive the witness of the Spirit, the Pharisees deflect it. We see the Pharisees deflect the Spirit's witness in, in three different ways. They, they explain it away, they, they demand signs, and they pursue their own moral reformation. So first we see the Pharisees explain it away in verse 24. Verse 24 says, uh, But when the Pharisees heard it, they said, It is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. See, they are explaining away the evidence They're giving an alternative explanation. Jesus, of course, shows that this explanation doesn't hold water. Uh, He says, one, if Satan is divided against himself, then his kingdom is going to come crashing down. And two, he says, their sons, right, possibly disciples of the Pharisees, their sons also cast out demons, Jesus says. And if the Pharisees claim that their power to cast out demons comes from God, why would they insist that Jesus' power comes from demons, right? It doesn't make sense. They have a double standard. And so he's basically saying, look, you you guys, you're just grasping at straws. You're just trying to come up with any explanation possible to explain away what Jesus is doing. Of course, the Pharisees not only seek to explain away the Spirit's witness, but they also demand signs, the, the religious leaders here, they, they must be upset that Jesus has refuted right, their reasoning before that he was demon-possessed. And so they challenge his authority from another angle. And it's kind of odd because Jesus has been giving repeated signs throughout his ministry. And they haven't accepted the signs that they've received so far. Why would they receive something more, right? Why are they demanding one more sign? Well, the truth of the matter is they're not really looking for evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, they're just they're challenging him. Right? They're, they're trying to challenge him. These religious leaders, they view themselves as, as they are the ultimate arbiters of truth. Right? They're the ones who decide right from wrong. Uh, give them the evidence, they'll make the call. Jesus says, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. He's saying it's our proud hearts right, that, that think that we have a right to judge Jesus. It's our perverse hearts that always demand more evidence. We judge and demand in order to avoid ever having to really make a commitment and deal with what's right in front of us. On the one hand, is there evidence? Well, of course there is. Jesus has just healed a demon-possessed man, right? Jesus calmed the seas. Jesus healed the sick. Jesus even raised the dead. The religious leaders of of the day are like kids who demand proof of something, and, and when that proof is given, they respond, oh yeah, well, what else? They're not willing to accept what Jesus has already done. And yet Jesus says uh, that he is willing to give them one more sign. Look at verse 39. Uh, Jesus answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Well, what's the sign, right? What's the sign that that Jesus is who he says he is? That just as Jonah went into the belly of the fish and came out again, so Jesus would go into the belly of the earth and on the third day rise again. The death and resurrection of Jesus are the great sign that he is who he says he is. 
If you want evidence that Jesus is who he says he is, that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus is the the Son of David, the Messiah who came to deal with sin, who has divine authority to forgive sins and to show mercy, well, there's no better evidence than Jesus' death and resurrection. Jesus died for our sins to offer forgiveness. Jesus rose from the dead, demonstrating that God had accepted his sacrifice, receiving in himself the the approbation and, and reward of the Father. He rose and gain the Father's smile. And now Jesus offers to share that victory with us if we believe in him. Here is the, really the great witness of the Spirit to Jesus, right? That Jesus rose from the dead in the power of the Spirit. And the question for us is, what are we doing with that sign? Are we receiving it? Are we believing it? Or are we trying to explain it away? And so the religious leaders of, of Jesus' day, well, they deflect the witness of the Spirit. They, they demand more evidence. They, when the evidence is given, they explain it away. But they also, they pursue moral reformation. Now, this may be not as obvious as it <clears throat> first appears. Or maybe, yeah, may not be obvious at first. Uh, the relig- uh, but but there, there's this point, there's this odd little story in this section in verses 43 and 45. 43 through 45. This odd story about an unclean spirit who leaves a person and comes back to find his house empty, swept, and put in order. And we're told that he returns then with seven other spirits, more evil than itself, and the last state of the person is worse than the first. Okay, what is this story about? The, the, the point of the, the, the story is this. A person might reform his life He might put his house in order. He might clean himself up. He might turn over a new leaf. He might put his best foot forward, right? He he might uh, do all of this moral reformation, but all of that does nothing to protect him from the power of the evil one. He can do all kinds of things to clean himself up and look good, but that doesn't protect him from the power of the evil one. In fact, with all of that reformation, his house is still empty, Jesus says. There's no Holy Spirit dwelling in this person. And so seven more evil spirits are brought to take him over. And so the last state of the person is worse than his first, right? His his ending is even worse than his start. Now, now it's interesting how Jesus applies this parable, because when we hear this parable, we start thinking about, what does this mean about demons? What does this mean about me? What does this mean? But but look at the way Jesus applies the parable. In the the last verse there, verse 47, uh, verse 45, sorry, he says, so also it will be with this evil generation. See, Jesus' contemporaries, they're, they're these highly religious, highly moral people. Their house was swept and put in order, but it was also empty and devoid of the Spirit. See, apart from responding to the witness of the Spirit to Jesus, apart from believing in Jesus, that he is who he he claims to be, that he came to overthrow Satan's kingdom, apart from believing that, their state actually will end up worse than if they had never reformed in the first place. And this often happens, right, with people who get very moral for a while or they try religion, so to speak, and they, they try out Christianity, they become hyper-moral people for a time, but the, all the energy they expend trying to be good, sooner or later it kind of catches up with them and they, they just don't do it anymore. And so they give up and they actually become more hardened in sin than they were to start with, more hardened to the gospel than they were to start with. 
And so let, let me ask, right? What, what is the Spirit teaching you about your sin, about, uh, about Jesus, and how are you responding to the Spirit's work? How are you responding to what the Spirit is teaching you? Are you deflecting it? Are you trying to explain it away or demanding more signs? Or are you saying, okay, I'm just going to try to be the best person I can be, trying to overcome my sin in my own strength, trying to avoid my need of a Redeemer? Well, it's dangerous to do this, isn't it? It's dangerous to just sort of ignore or deflect the Spirit's witness to Jesus. And Jesus warns us of that danger in this passage. There, there, on the one hand, there's the danger of refusing uh, to respond to this, the witness of the Spirit because uh, you, you might become more hardened in your sin. That's what we just saw. But there's another danger, and it's the danger that when we reject the witness of the Spirit, we're also rejecting forgiveness. You know, the religious people of Jesus' day, they were taking uh, this specific testimony of the Holy Spirit to Jesus, uh, his healing of the demon-possessed man, and they were rejecting it as evil or as demonic, they said. They were interpreting it really uh, opposite of its true meaning. And this is where we get this, this ever-perplexing statement in verse 31, which says, there, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Now, there are two things that we should notice about this statement as it stands. Uh, the first is this. Tim Keller points out that verse 31 has two statements that seem contradictory. Right? Look at the first statement. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, people. Every blasphemy will be forgiven. It's not qualified at that point. It's not most Blasphemy will be forgiven, but every, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But then there's this second statement that says the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And so you think, okay, well, what just happened, right? What's, what's going on here? Every blasphemy will be forgiven. This particular blasphemy will not be forgiven, right? What is Jesus getting at? On the one hand, God is ready to forgive every sin and every blasphemy, that's what Jesus says. If you're sitting here wondering if you've committed an unforgivable sin, I can, with confidence on the authority of Jesus' words, tell you every sin you have committed is forgivable if you only turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Jesus has authority on earth to forgive sins. God desires mercy, and he sent Jesus to bring mercy. Whatever your sin, whatever your blasphemy, God is ready and willing to forgive your sin and blasphemy if you will turn to Jesus to find that forgiveness. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven. That's what Jesus says. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Well, what, what just happened, right? What is going on? First, every, every blasphemy will be forgiven. Now blasphemy against the Spirit will not be. Why this particular sin? What is so bad about blasphemy against the Spirit? Well, what even is blasphemy against the Spirit? What is Jesus getting at? Well, consider the context, right? What's going on in this story? The, the Spirit has been empowering Jesus to perform miracles. These miracles bear witness to who Jesus is. They are the Spirit's witness to Jesus. The Pharisees reject the Spirit's witness. They call it demonic. And as a result of rejecting the Spirit and his witness, they reject Jesus. The Pharisees see the evidence before their eyes. They see his Jesus' fulfillment of the promises of the Messiah. They, they have no logical reason to, to reject Jesus, but they out and out deny the Spirit's clear witness. 
See, blasphemy against the Spirit is when we look at the work of the Spirit through Jesus, the Spirit's witness to Jesus, and we knowingly reject it. And why is that sin un- unforgivable? Well, because is it because that it's somehow worse? There's some scale of sins, and if you put this sin on one end, it's worse than all the rest. Well, actually, no. It's because when we reject the Spirit's witness to who Jesus is, as a result, we do not turn to Jesus for forgiveness. Right? If we, if we reject the witness of the Spirit to Jesus, that causes us to reject Jesus himself. Every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. Every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven people if they turn to Jesus for forgiveness. We, we read uh, the, the verse earlier, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But if we reject the Spirit's witness to Jesus and therefore do not turn to Jesus for forgiveness, we will never be forgiven. Now there's a second thing we should notice about this statement. Jesus actually explains this statement in verses 33 to 37. He he, he expands on what he's talking about. What Jesus teaches in those verses is that, that what we say, not to mention what we do, but what we say reveals the condition of our hearts. Jesus mentions, in fact, that we will be judged by every careless word, Every thoughtless word, every, every word that you let slip out of your mouth, Jesus says, will judge you. Now, that, that seems a bit harsh to us, right? I mean, I, I, I let a word slip and boom, I'm condemned for life, right? And that's not exactly what Jesus means. What he means is that our words, especially those we, quote, let slip, our words tend to be the truest reflection of what is really in our hearts, A tree is known by its fruit, Jesus says. And so you see why Jesus points out blasphemy against the Spirit and speaking against the Spirit. See, our response to the Spirit demonstrates our heart. To speak against the Holy Spirit is to have a heart that is hard and and, and willing to resist the Spirit's work. Now, His work is revealing Jesus to us. And so if we resist the Spirit's work, we refuse to turn to Jesus and find forgiveness again. See, Jesus is saying that, that he's not saying that there's this one special sin, right? And if you don't, it, you, you better make sure you don't accidentally commit it or you're out forever. That's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is saying, don't harden your heart to God's spirit. He's saying, don't, don't harden your heart to the spirit's witness to Jesus. Because when that happens, you'll reject Jesus and you'll never turn and find forgiveness. And now, by the way, it's, it's often said at this point, and it's important to say, that if you're worried that you might have committed the unforgivable sin or the unpardonable sin, that really shows a softness of heart that means that you haven't committed this sin. Right? If you're, if you're worried, that shows that your heart is soft. There's some softness there. The real danger is in deflection, right? It's, the danger is in explaining away what God has done in Jesus, Because when we do that, when we begin to explain it away, we harden our hearts and we never turn and find forgiveness. So what is the Spirit teaching you? Particularly, what is he teaching you about Jesus? And what are you doing with that? Are you deflecting it, right? Or do you see how dangerous that can be? That that could harden your heart and leave you in your sins forever? Or are you doing the will of the Father? 
In the very end of, uh, of our chapter, of chapter 12, while Jesus is speaking, his mother and his brothers come and they want to talk with him. And Jesus replies in verse 48, Who is my mother and who are my brothers? And stretching out his hands toward his disciples, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. And Jesus here is essentially redefining what it means to be a part of the family of God. Except he's not, he's not changing the definition. That's not what I mean by redefining. He's correcting the mistaken views of the religious leaders of his day. The religious leaders thought that their ethnicity counted a great deal and their religious works counted for the rest. But Jesus says it's not your ethnicity, nor is it your religious activity. It's, it's doing the will of the Father. Now, I think what Jesus is doing here is he's contrasting those who believe in him with those religious leaders who deflect the Spirit's witness, right? There, there are here are my disciples, and then there are others, right, who aren't receiving this witness. But why does he say those who do the will of the Father? Well, there, there are two reasons, right? One, Jesus already told us that a tree is known by its fruit, and so Jesus can confidently say, it's those who do God's will that belong to me because they have the fruit which demonstrates that who they are. Uh, but second, the will of the Father, as we read through Matthew, is again and again submitting to the authority of Jesus. The Father wants people to look to Jesus as the King, to believe in him, to obey him, to follow him. In the Gospel of John, Jesus says, the will of the Father is to believe in the one whom he has sent. In Matthew, we could summarize the, the, the will of the Father by saying that it's to submit to Jesus as the King who shows mercy and forgives sins. That's the Father's will for us. And so we really have two ways to respond to the Spirit's witness. On the one hand, we could deflect it, we could explain it away or, or demand more signs or, or just try to pursue more reformation, make ourselves a better person so we don't need this Jesus person. Or we can do the will of the Father. We can believe in the one whom he has sent. We can receive the witness of the Spirit and respond to it in faith. We can look to Jesus as the King who came to renew all things, beginning by forgiving our sins and showing mercy. Well, this brings us to our final question, right? And, and that is, what gets in your way? Okay, we see the witness of the Spirit. We know that we need to respond to that uh, by doing the will of the Father, by receiving that witness and believing in Jesus. The question for us now is, what gets in our way? What stops us? What do you, why do you find it so hard to simply receive the Spirit's witness? For the Pharisees, interestingly enough, it was clearly their, their religion which hindered grace. Uh, you see that because in Matthew, it's almost always the unreligious and the Gentiles who are coming to Jesus. It happens again and again and again in the gospel. But the religious Jewish people, particularly the leaders, the religious leaders, they stay away. You see this in verses 41 and 42, right? Uh, here Jesus says that the men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, but something greater than Jonah is here. Again, the queen of Sheba will rise up at the judgment and condemn this generation because she came from the ends of the earth to hear Solomon, but something greater than Solomon is here. See what Jesus is saying? He's saying the pagan men of Nineveh and the pagan queen of Sheba Right? They responded to the work of the Spirit in their day. But the religious leaders of Jesus' day reject the Spirit. And Jesus said back in Matthew 8 that many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. 
while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. And why is that? Why is it that those who are seemingly closest, the, the religious leaders themselves, why is it that their religion itself often hinders their receiving grace? Well, think of it this way. You know, part of the work of the Spirit is to show us our sin, right? And, and what happens when you see your sin? Well, when you see your sin, then you feel guilty, often. And, uh, and the devil, again, unless you harden your heart to what the Spirit is teaching you, you feel guilty, okay? Well, you feel guilty. And then the devil, the devil takes this opportunity to accuse you, right? He says things like this. He says, oh, you're, you're such a horrible sinner, right? You're worthless. God could never love you. God could never forgive you. You call yourself a Christian. How can you possibly live like this? See, the devil takes the opportunity to accuse us, to put in his two cents, right? And, and what do you do with that guilt and that accusation? Well, you could drown it in pleasure. That's the, the irreligious option, right? Just drown it in pleasure. I'm just going to go out and have as much fun as I can to try to numb my mind to this guilt and accusation problem, right? Or you could get very religious. And the Pharisees sought to quell their guilty conscience through rule-keeping, right? Keeping the rules makes us often feel good about ourselves. It makes us feel like we're in control. It gives us a, a position in society at times. It enables us to look down on other people, which again makes us feel better about ourselves. See, the religious people in Jesus' day liked their system of self-justification, and they liked their system of self-righteousness. Paul says they were pursuing their own righteousness. And if something makes us feel good about ourselves, especially if it makes us feel righteous, it quiets the voice of the accuser for just a moment because we can say, no, no, look, look, Satan, look at how good I am. Look at these good things that I did. I, look, I, I can check all of these things off the list. It quiets the voice of the accuser for just a moment. It might be our accomplishments at work. It might be our, our reputation as an intellectual. It might be our GPA. It might be having a clean home. You know, I, I, feel, I feel so righteous when I clean my desk, right? If you see my desk, if it's clean, right, you know you got there on the one day out of the month when it's clean. My, it's, it's normally a mess, and I feel so bad about it being messy, and I want it to be clean. Then I clean my desk, and I feel so good about myself. Just ask my wife. I tell her afterwards i'm like i feel i feel so righteous right now <laughs> but it's my righteousness and not jesus but but you know i i have low standards right um when i balance my checkbook i feel really righteous i feel so good about myself my checkbook is balanced yes jesus is saying to the pharisees that all of their rules are meaningless right these things don't make you righteous but if they buy that where does that leave them it leaves them back loaded down with their guilt and accusations. If my rules don't mean anything, if they don't make me more righteous before God, then I'm back stuck with my guilt, with the accusations of the evil one. If I can't say, look, I cleaned my desk today, I'm a pretty good guy, right? Then I'm left with Satan saying, you're a horrible sinner, right? How could God ever love you? What kind of Christian do you think you are? Which is why Jesus comes to deal with the accuser. Did you notice the, there's these, there, are the, there are a whole bunch of interesting verses in this section of Scripture, but there are these interesting verses about binding the strong man and plundering his house. Right Back in, in chapter 12, there, there are verse uh, 29. Jesus talks about binding the strong man and plundering his house. What is Jesus getting at there? Well, Jesus is saying that he, if he is going to plunder Satan's kingdom, he must first bind Satan. 
Revelation uh, chapter 12, verses 7 through 11, talk about this. Uh, And they tell us that because of Jesus coming into the world, that the devil has been cast out of heaven. And there's this refrain that's sung in response to the devil being cast out of heaven in Revelation uh, chapter 12, verse 10. And it goes like this. Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down who accuses them day and night before our God. See, the strong man, by the work of Jesus, by his death on the cross, the strong man has been bound and he can accuse us no more. Because of Jesus bearing our sin and paying the penalty for our sin, Satan's accusations can't stick. The teeth of the devil have been knocked out, right? Satan has lost any authority that he had to accuse us. You remember in the book of Job, Satan's role in the book of Job, he basically, his role there is he comes into heaven and and, uh, he says to God, oh, Job is only good because of this, that, and the other thing. If you took it all away, he would he would uh, reject you. See, he's accusing. He goes into heaven and he accuses Job before the Father. Satan has been cast out of heaven, Revelation 12 says. His power has been bound. No longer can he accuse us before the Father. You know, many of us feel our guilt. We, we hear the devil's accusations against our soul and we get very religious. We try to quiet our consciences. But Jesus silences the accuser by his death. And remember, he is the king who uses his authority to forgive sins and show mercy. Which means if he's forgiven our sins, no matter how much the devil can remind us of them, like look at what you've done. Look at how terrible you are. Look at, look at how, how dare you say you're a Christian and fall into that sin. We can say, but Jesus has taken it all. Right? Jesus took that sin upon himself on the cross. And the devil's accusations mean nothing anymore. Well, what is the Holy Spirit teaching you about Jesus? Don't push against it. Believe it. Respond by trusting in Jesus. The only unforgivable sin is pushing back against the Holy Spirit's witness to Christ and so refusing to turn to Jesus for forgiveness. And when you persist in that sin, you persist in a state of unforgiveness. But when we give up that sin, when we receive the Holy Spirit's witness and we trust in Jesus, then every sin, every sin and every blasphemy will be forgiven. Let's pray. Our Father, we we pray that you would open our eyes to see the work of Jesus and to believe in it. And that too, Father, we know comes from your spirit. Your spirit bears witness to Christ by, by Christ's many miracles, by the resurrection But we need your spirit as well to open our eyes so that we can believe in those things, that we can receive that witness. So we pray for the work of your spirit to work in our hearts, to renew our hearts, to open our eyes, to give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts to believe in the work of our Savior and then to put our trust in him, that his death, his death silences the the, the mouth of the accuser for us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.